How would you like for this Christmas as part of your celebration some wonderful wines to enjoy, courtesy of the best wine club that's out there, Wine 52? So you can just kick back and relax with a fabulous selection of carefully selected wines that you won't find anywhere else. It's a pretty good idea that, eh? How about to make it even sweeter? How about if you got them for free? Even better that, isn't it? Simply cover the postage costs of £8.95 when you head to www.wine52, that's wine52.com slash truecrime and have selected your preference and three fabulous bottles will be winging their way to your door. And that's not something to whine about. Yes, I've opened my Christmas crackers early. I've been increasingly impressed with the wines I've received from Wine52 because they seem to not just know what I like, but they smash it out of the park. And in fact, even as I'm recording this now, I've a nice Malbec from Mendoza on the go, courtesy of them. There's something for everybody there. And best of all, with Wine52, you have the choice of what you want. It's your preference, totally. If, like me, you're a red wine all the way type of person, you can have just that. If white wine's your thing, you see where this is going, I'm sure. You can even mix it up a bit and have a dabble in each. It's up to you. After you've received your free case, which also includes two tasty snacks to enjoy with your wine, as well as Glug magazine, so you can read up on the wine culture of each region that wine is selected for you from, you'll automatically join the monthly wine club. But there's no minimum commitment, so if you think that it's not for you, you can pause or even cancel your subscription anytime. So remember, for that Christmas treat to yourself that you don't want to miss, head over to www.wine52, that's wine52.com slash truecrime to claim your free case of delicious wine today from the UK's most exciting wine club. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you each time around from my crap-filled spare room in North Wales, and in which I've sought out the tales of true crime from the UK and Ireland that you may not know. You may think, why is that not more known? And which are all true for your listening. I want to say pleasures, but that doesn't seem the right noun to use, but you know what I mean anyway. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The hairy menace with one eye, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is around somewhere also, as I'm sure you'll hear periodically throughout the episode. And most importantly, you are you, the cherished enthusiasts that make a show such as this all worthwhile. Fabulous of you all to join me in the hairy football today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I hope that as you have then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, the penultimate tale of 2022 for the regular show has ended up as a two-part tale. It wasn't planned as one originally, but when I'd finished writing it, it turned out longer than the list of trades and sectors that are striking right now. And I wouldn't want to have any of the tale lost in translation, or to be a slog to get to the end of so breaking it into two parts makes it much more manageable and you can refine the tale that much more also. If you haven't yet heard part one of A Moment of Madness, then you're best off heading back and starting that one before going straight in here, or else it will make as much sense as the appeal of a new horror I happened to witness part of the other night. BBC Saturday Night Shite, I Can See Your Voice. I watched it for about a minute and wanted to be dead. It was such utter crap. 
Come back, bridge of lies, all is forgiven. If you are up to speed with the tale so far, then just a quick recap. We headed back to 1991 and over to Dublin, where on the last day of August of that year, the naked body of a woman, battered beyond almost all recognition, was discovered on a rural road at the foot of the Dublin mountains. She was soon afterwards identified as 31-year-old Patricia O'Toole, an attractive, happily married, well-liked woman from the village of Killiney, and when her final movements were traced, we heard how she'd gone from a night out with friends that Friday to, in the early hours of the Saturday, driving almost aimlessly around a suburb of Dublin, drunk and trying to find the home of an ex-boyfriend. Within five hours of her friends seeing her leave, she was horrifically murdered by a killer that Garda deemed likely to be from the area she was seen by several driving around, picking the wrong person to ask directions from. It was a very high-profile crime and featured heavily in the press and media. By nine days after the murder, Garda were to get the breakthrough that they'd been searching for, when two members of the public came forward with a shocking story that they had heard only minutes before which I shall tell you all about here, right now. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, including descriptions of injury detail, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second and final part of an episode I've entitled A Moment of Madness. By Monday the 9th of September, nine days after the murder of Patricia O'Toole, house-to-house inquiries referenced the murder had moved to the Ballyfermer area, a Dublin suburb five miles west of the city centre. It was here, at 9.45pm that evening, whilst making routine inquiries, that two detectives from the Tala Incident Room, John Mournsell and Thomas Flynn, were approached by two men and were informed by them that they held vital information about the murder in the Dublin mountains. It was the vital breakthrough that detectives had been looking for over the previous nine days. Within moments, the two detectives had requested assistance and were heading to a house on Kylemore Road to speak to a 20-year-old woman named Rosaline Holland, who, although was very distressed as she did, had a remarkable story to tell them. She told the two detectives that at about 4am on the Saturday morning of the murder, she had been walking along Swear Road in the Dolphins Barn area, returning home after a night out with her boyfriend, a 25-year-old soldier serving in the transport section of the 2nd Infantry Battalion stationed at Cathalbrugger Barracks, Private Sean Courtney, when a small white car had stopped them near Highland Shop and the driver, a blonde woman, had asked them for directions to an address that Rosaline either didn't properly hear or did not know. However, she claimed that her boyfriend did know the address and had tried explaining directions to the woman, but that the woman could not understand where she was being directed to, being either too upset or too drunk, and had asked the couple to get into the car, which they'd done. Rosaline into the back and Courtney into the front. Apparently, drink driving wasn't a worry there. 
They then travelled at Courtney's direction to the flat that the couple shared on the South Circular Road, number 595, near to the Wessel Industries factory, as it had been arranged that Rosaline would be dropped off at home, and Courtney would then direct the woman to the address as a passenger, and once she was aware of the route, she would then bring him home, and then head back there. So off they set. Courtney telling Rosaline that he wouldn't be long. Rosaline claimed that she'd looked at her watch when she got in, which read 4.10am, but she did not go to bed for another 30 minutes, as she was expecting Courtney to have returned by then, and sat on a windowsill watching for him, with him having no keys to the flat. When he'd failed to return by this time, she'd fallen asleep, but was woken up sometime later, between 8 and 9am, by the sound of gravel and coins being thrown at the bedroom window. Looking out, half asleep, she'd spotted Courtney leaning against a wall outside. She'd then gone down and let him in, him claiming that he'd slept for a while on the steps outside because he couldn't wake her, and they had both then gone back to bed, her recalling that he had held her tightly and she had recoiled from him because he was so deathly cold. That Monday afternoon, nine days later, he had shown her a newspaper report concerning the murder of Patricia O'Toole and had admitted tearfully to her that it had been he who had killed her. Though she could barely believe what she heard, she indeed recognised Patricia as being the driver of the car that Courtney had gone off with, ostensibly to give directions to. Rosaline's distressed account convinced them enough that soon afterwards, Detective Mournsell was on the telephone to the Tala incident room to inform his superiors as to developments, and within the hour, Detective Superintendent Pat King, Detective Superintendent Pat McCarrick, and Detective Inspector Tony Rourke were preparing to head out to Kathalbruger Barracks, where Courtney was reportedly part way through a 24-hour duty that evening. By 12.30am, Detective Mournsell had accompanied Rosaline back to her flat, where she pointed out to the detective the clothes that Courtney had been wearing on the night Patricia was murdered. He collected these, a blue-coloured long-sleeved shirt, multi-coloured paisley tie, navy blue trousers with a brown belt, navy blue socks and navy laced leather upper and plastic soled shoes. And in sealed bags, these were handed over to the forensic team at Garda headquarters for examination. At around the same time, Detective Superintendent King and the other two officers had arrived at the barracks, where they met the duty officer, Lieutenant Paul Murphy of the 2nd Cavalry Squadron, and had asked him to confirm if Private Courtney was on duty that evening. A check of records informed them that he was in the barracks at that time, and at 12.55am, the officers were knocking on the door of Courtney's room in the 2nd Infantry Battalion Transport Section where he shortly answered the door dressed only in his underwear. Allowing him to dress, Detective Superintendent King then arrested Courtney on suspicion of the murder of Patricia O'Toole, to which he didn't respond directly to the caution issued him, but instead asked Lieutenant Murphy, who was also present, as to what he should do. When told he would have to go with the officers, Courtney was then taken to Talas Station, where once here, he waived his right to rest, based upon the time, and instead began making a full statement, 
part of which reads as follows. I joined the Irish Army on the 12th of November 1985, and at the moment I am attached to the 2nd Infantry Battalion, Cathalbrugger Barracks, Rathmines. I have been trained as a driver of trucks and armoured cars. At the moment, I am living at 595 South Circular Road, Dublin 8, with my girlfriend, Rosaline Holland, of Ballyfermot. I remember last Friday week, I was off duty for the weekend. That Friday night, I went with my girlfriend to the West County Hotel in Chapel Lizard. It was a disco for the National Medical Care Rangers football team. We were joined at the function by Stephen Stack from Walkinstown, Una Madden from Inchicore, Vincent McArdle from Ballyfermot, and Yvonne McArdle from Ballyfermot. We stayed at the disco until it finished. I had about 12 or 13 pints of Carlsberg for the night. I had £60 going to the disco and had only £3 going home. I got a taxi with Rosalind Holland, Una Madden and Stephen Stack from the West County Hotel to Una Madden's sister's house just near the canal, near Highland Shop, where you turn right off Swear Road. I gave my £3 towards the taxi. I wish to correct that and say... I had only £3 left after paying for the taxi. After getting out of the taxi outside Una Madden's sister's house, we went into that house for a short time. I had no idea what time it was. Rosaline, Stephen Stack and myself left that house and Stephen Stack walked with us to show us the way home. He left us at Highland Shop on Swear Road and walked away. Just after he walked away, Peugeot 205 car, white colour, pulled up beside myself and Rosaline. It came up towards Swear Road from Kilmainham direction, and I saw that this car was driven by a girl. The passenger window of this car was down. The lady leaned over from her driver's seat and said she was lost. She asked us if we knew where Connolly Avenue was. I had a fair idea where Connolly Avenue was, and tried to explain to this girl where it was, but she didn't seem to understand. I said, I'll show you if you want, and she said, okay, get in. I asked her if she would drop my girlfriend to our flat. She said yes, and also said she would drop me back after I'd shown her Connolly Avenue. Rosaline and myself got into the car. I sat in the front seat, and Rosaline sat in the back. We drove around to our flat, and Rosaline got out. I got out of the passenger seat and let her out. Now, there is some confusion about the amount of alcohol that Courtney drank that night. He claimed in his statement, as you've just heard, to have drunk between 12 and 13 pints of Carlsberg, including having four pints stacked up in front of him towards the end of the evening, which he drank and even attempted to get into the taxi with one. Whilst Rosaline was more of the impression that he'd had about six, saying later in her statement, he drank about six pints. He gets drunk easily because he doesn't drink very often. All of the people mentioned in the statement thus far were to confirm Courtney's version of events up to this point. They furthered that he'd fallen asleep whilst in Una's sister's house, where she was at the time house-sitting, as the rest of them were watching the film Three Men and a Little Lady. But Stephen agreed in his statement that because Rosaline wanted to go home, refusing the offer of staying over there, he had walked part of the way with the couple, both of them supporting Courtney. 
Rosaline's account took over from there and tallied with Courtney's as you've heard it thus far. However, the following is based solely on the only account available of what happened following this, that of Sean Courtney himself, which reads as follows. I then got back into the car and directed the lady to drive up Sweer Road and turn right onto another road towards Conley Avenue, which is at the end of that road. On the way to Conley Avenue, this lady stopped the car at a big road junction of about five roads. We were talking general conversation. She was asking me questions about myself, and I told her all about myself. I was drunk and telling her all about myself. Then she said to me, you never know who you pick up in a car at this time of night. She then said, I could get you done for attacking me. If I went to the police, it would only be your word against mine. She was laughing about me and seemed to think it was a big joke. Now Courtney said this affected him as an army colleague of his had been accused of something similar by a woman and had been imprisoned for it for nine years and he didn't believe him to be guilty. He continued, I didn't know what to think. I just blew a fuse and I went mad. I was sitting in the front passenger seat. I hit her a few punches in the face and she went semi-conscious and fell over towards me. I opened the passenger door and got out. I pulled her across into the passenger seat, closed the passenger door and I went around to the driver's door, opened it and got into the driver's seat. I didn't know what to do. So I drove off in the car with this lady in the passenger seat. I headed towards the mountains. I think I went by South Circular Road, Herberton Bridge and towards the mountains. I was in a state of panic. I didn't know what to do. I had no plan. He nevertheless seemed to have some sort of an idea formulated in his mind. For he soon appeared some nine miles away at Mount Venus Road. Courtney's statement continued. As I drove on some road near the mountain, this lady came to and started to scream. I pulled in at a gateway and grabbed her by the throat. The passenger's door on her side flew open. She must have opened it. She fell out sideways, but her legs were still in the car. I went out the passenger door after her. She was going backwards along the ground, moving on her back, propelling herself on her hands and legs. She was screaming and trying to get away. She was lying on the ground and was kicking and struggling. I just went mad. I grabbed some type of a rock nearby and started hitting it on the head and face with it. I hit her several times, sometimes holding the rock with my two hands. She was screaming at first as I hit her, but then she went silent. During the rain of blows, he claimed Patricia's screams petered out and in a weak voice, with what was possibly her last breath, she appealed to him, don't ruin your life. Courtney continued, she was barely breathing and then her breathing stopped. I couldn't remember her face, I just can't see it. It's like I was standing away from it. I wasn't there, I was looking down in it. I seen the girl lying there, she just stopped breathing. The sound was just so quiet at that time of the morning, I just felt sick. I got the keys out of the ignition and opened the boot with it. I was going to put her in the boot and leave the car somewhere. All types of thoughts were going through my mind. I then took all of her clothes off and threw them in the field so as to make it look like she was sexually attacked. 
The shoes were on the road and I threw them in the passenger door window, which was open. Then I closed the boot, got into the driver's seat and started the car. I couldn't find reverse at first, but then I found reverse and the car went back. I felt a bump from the rear wheel of the car. I think the rear wheel hit the body, but I didn't stop to find out. Headed back towards the city, but I'm not sure of the route. I remember coming back by Good Council Pitch and Put Club. I turned left and turned left again at the second set of traffic lights. I came across Temple Oak Bridge through Kimmage, left onto Sundrive Road, onto Herberton Road, left onto Keeper Road, right onto Sleeve Naman Road, and round the roundabout onto Morn Road Lower, left at the end of Morn Road, and I parked the car just at the corner of Dolphin Road. I got out of the car, and just after I crossed the road from the car, a police car passed and went along the canal. I walked along the canal towards Swear Bridge, and threw the keys of the car into the canal there. I was covered in blood, and I washed my hands in the canal. At the time, I was wearing a blue-coloured long-sleeved shirt, multicoloured paisley tie, navy blue trousers with a brown belt, navy blue socks, and navy laced leather upper and plastic-soled shoes. After this, I went back to my flat on the South Circular Road. Now, if anybody else's spidey sense has gone off here with the statement to this point, I'll refer to it later on. Well, the bits I think need addressing. Courtney claimed that after this, he had arrived back at the flat and tried unsuccessfully for a while to wake Rosaline, eventually sleeping for a time on the steps. When he finally awoke her and she let him in, he then got undressed and managed to hide his blood-stained shirt and trousers in a roll underneath the bottom of the bed, and then got in beside Rosaline. He claimed, I just wanted to hold somebody. I felt awful. I just couldn't understand why I'd killed the girl, or why what had happened, happened. Nonetheless, Courtney had then slept until about 3pm, when he retrieved the clothes that he'd rolled up and stuffed under the bed, and placed them into the washing machine, something he would have habitually left for his girlfriend to do, but had overlooked washing the paisley pattern tie he had also been wearing, and which was covered in blood spatter. He had then watched a football match on television, the Merseyside derby, in which Liverpool won 3-1, and then headed out later on to get a takeaway curry for the couple. On the way home, he bought an Evening Herald newspaper where he'd read about the discovery on Mount Venus Road earlier that morning. Courtney and Rosaline had stayed in that Saturday evening, and she recalled emptying the washing machine and becoming extremely annoyed, because the dye had run from Courtney's navy blue trousers, and had run onto all of the other clothes in the drum, ruining several other items. She noticed, as she was to claim in her statement, how quiet he was. But the killing itself seemed to have, at that time anyway, no real adverse effect on Courtney, despite him later claiming that he couldn't eat and had had sickness and diarrhoea over the next few days. The following day, he'd played a football match for medical care rangers against the Cardiff team, with no one noticing any difference in him, and he even attended football training as normal that following Thursday, ahead of another match the following Sunday. 
No one had noticed any difference in him when he was on duty throughout the week either. So, who is this self-confessed killer we're talking about? Born in October 1966 as the only son of a bus driver and part-time cleaner, Matthew and Mary Courtney, John Courtney appeared to everyone to be the model soldier, for serving in the forces had been a boyhood dream of his, a chance he saw to shake off the timid child in him that was scared of the dark, and who'd been so badly bullied at school that at age 12, he had taken an overdose and spent two weeks in hospital and would only consider going back into education when his father agreed that he could change schools. He'd hero worshipped an uncle who served in the Defence Forces, and as soon as he finished his intermediate certificate at the Crumlin Vocational School in Dublin's Clower Road, had tried to enlist himself. However, he was, in 1982, at age 16, too young, and was rejected. In the meanwhile, he put a talent for drawing that he had to good use and got himself a job as an apprentice sign writer for a company in Walkinstown. He'd come from a hard-working family and along with his sister Martina had had a good upbringing, only ever coming to the notice of the law once years before, at age 14, when he was arrested for burglary, though because the case was ultimately dealt with under the Garda's juvenile liaison scheme, he escaped this with merely a warning and no subsequent criminal conviction. In 1983, he started a relationship with a girl named Amanda, who would go on to become his wife, and after 18 months, had their first son, Michael, in October 1984, moving in with Courtney's parents in Drimnar. They married the following year, and moved into a house on Drumcairn Drive in Tala. It was on the 12th of November of that year, 1985, that Courtney finally got the chance that he'd been waiting for and enlisted in the army at Cathalbrugger Barracks in Rathmines. By the time he'd finished recruit training and passed out in July 1986 at the rank of three-star private, he joined the transport platoon of the 2nd Infantry Battalion, being taught how to drive Land Rovers and armoured personnel carriers. And Courtney could have gone on to have a glowing and successful military career, he was popular with his colleagues, described by his senior NCOs as a good and functional soldier, was always punctual and smartly turned out, and was always willing to volunteer for any extra duties, even helping one of his sergeants out as an assistant scoutmaster. He remained attached to Cattlebrugger Barracks until April 1987, where he first volunteered to go overseas on UN peacekeeping duties to Lebanon with the 61st Infantry Battalion. It was an uneventful six-month tour for him, and when he returned, with the money that he'd saved whilst being away on detachment, he and Amanda used the few thousand pounds to renovate their new home on Leyland Road in Crumlin. He would sign up a further twice for Lebanon duties, but was not to complete his third tour. On his second tour of South Lebanon, where he was sent in April 1988, two months into the tour, Courtney was involved in an incident where the post he was manned at underwent heavy mortar fire, and then a short time after this, he was at a vehicle checkpoint when he was forced to open fire on a local Christian militiaman during a skirmish where some of his colleagues were threatened and he claimed he had received a rifle pointed at his head. No one was reportedly killed as a result, 
though return fire from Courtney was reported to have hit the militiaman in the leg. As a result of his actions during the incident, he claimed to superiors that he'd been receiving threats from the local Israeli-backed South Lebanon army fighters, and so, for his own safety, his own authority deemed it best practice to transfer Courtney to another post within A Company area of operations. Then, towards the end of that second tour, in August 1988, a colleague and friend of Courtney's, Private Padre, or Paddy Wright as he was known, had been killed in a shooting incident in a toilet cubicle. I describe it as a shooting incident as such, because while some sources claim that he had shot himself, and Courtney himself did, other sources, including the Royal Military Police, and indeed Wright's family, claim that after a thorough investigation, it was deemed the result of an accidental or negligent discharge on Wright's part. Courtney reportedly saw the badly mutilated body fall out of the cubicle, and would later claim that the discovery of his friend's body had had a terrible effect upon him, which had led to the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder. He was to claim much later. I turned and ran. I ran in slow motion. I just wasn't moving. I was just running. After returning home from this second tour, Courtney's marriage now rapidly went downhill. By this time having a second child, who'd been born in July of that year whilst he was away, James, Amanda would soon complain to all that she wasn't given enough money to run the house by her husband, and that he would look after himself and his own needs over her and their children, mainly to fund his drinking, even to the point where his parents had to step in to provide for the children's clothing. In an effort to try and repair the marriage and to give the couple some space, Courtney had volunteered once again for a further Lebanon tour, this time with the 67th Infantry Battalion in April 1990. But just two days into this tour, which he'd flown out to by some accounts in tears throughout, he was admitted to the medical centre at Camp Shamrock complaining of feeling ill. Deemed unfit for duty, he was repatriated on medical grounds a week later, and upon returning home, was admitted to St. Bryson's Military Hospital for Psychiatric Assessment, being released after admittance after a few days, though which he was reportedly attached to as an outpatient for three months. He returned to Amanda, but apart from a brief attempt at reconciliation in 1990, their marriage was pretty much doomed, and she'd soon moved out and in with Courtney's parents at their home in Drimnar. One night, on a night out shortly after she had, he had met Rosaline Holland and had told his wife about their encounter. Two days later, he'd packed his bags completely and had moved out of the house, allowing Amanda and their children to move back home and supporting the family from his wages. Otherwise, whatever a husband he may have been, Sean Courtney was unremarkable, a capable soldier, one well-liked by his colleague and friends yet one who had that August morning committed the most horrific murder and seemingly just shrugged it off and acted as normal. Seemingly. But by 9th of September, the pressure was by now beginning to mount heavily on Courtney and he began to feel it strongly. The previous day, he'd called on his ex-wife Amanda to visit their children 
taking them out for a few hours and returning about 6pm. Staying for a couple, the conversation between them began with the discussion of their children's futures, what school they should send them to and all that, but then expanded. Amanda recalled later, Sean knew that I'd been to see the film Silence of the Lambs a few days before. He asked me what it was about, and I told him it was about a fellow who went about killing people and then using their skins to make clothes for himself. He asked me why I was so interested in murders, and I said that I just found them interesting, that the Moors murders had happened more than 20 years previously, and people still found them interesting. He knew I'd written to Ian Brady and Myra Hindley a few years ago. I just wanted to get a letter back from them to put into my scrapbook, but they never answered my letters. He asked me if I would ever write to anybody else in prison if they'd committed murder, and I said no. He then asked me what did I think of the girl being found murdered up in the mountains, referring to Patricia O'Toole. I said it was terrible. By the following day, that pressure was unbearable, and Courtney rang Rosalina at her work, National Medical Care, where she worked making kidney machines and told her that he had something to tell her that would make her leave him. Rosaline was mystified as to what this could be, and mentioned so to some of her work colleagues. At 3pm, Courtney collected her and another colleague, Elizabeth Abbey, from work when their shift ended, and during the journey back home, a news bulletin concerning the murder came over the radio, which Courtney then immediately switched off. He also pressed his foot down on the accelerator and drove faster, according to Elizabeth Abbey, who also noticed that he appeared to have been crying. Once they dropped Elizabeth off, when they returned back to the flat, Courtney asked Rosaline to go out to the car and get the newspaper from under the driver's seat, but please don't read the front of it until you come back in. Rosaline did this, mystified, and came back in with a copy of the Sunday World newspaper from the day before. At this stage, Courtney was now crying fully, and when she looked at the front of the paper, which carried an article concerning the murder of Patricia O'Toole on its front page, he blurted out to her, I've done that. I killed her. I've really made a fuck of it this time. Oh shit, eh? Shaking and crying, he told Rosaline what he claimed had happened and that he hadn't meant to do it and when she asked him if he'd raped Patricia, he said, Look in the paper, I didn't rape her. He then pleaded with Rosaline not to tell anyone and told her that they would talk more when he returned later that evening then unbelievably went back to Kathelbrugger Barracks where he was on 24-hour duty that day. Before he'd left, he had told her, she recalled later, he told me not to worry, he would do all the worrying. He gave me a hug and went off to work. When he'd gone, Rosaline read the Sunday World article over and over and then headed out to grab an evening press to read more about the killing, Courtney's words echoing through her mind. Rosaline sat on her own crying, a world now in ruins with Courtney's bombshell confession, until he returned at 7pm. She now pleaded with him that they would have to tell someone about this, even if it was just his mother, but he refused this, saying it would only break his mother's heart. Soon afterwards, Courtney returned once again to the barracks 
after having asked Rosaline to call him there, but she instead rang her friend Elizabeth Abbey and asked her to call around. And Elizabeth, telling Rosaline she had a good idea what had been said, due to Courtney's actions earlier that day, did just that, but collecting some other friends of theirs as she did so. By 9.30pm, Rosaline was at the home of one of her friends in Ballyfermot and had told them what her boyfriend had confessed to her that afternoon. Deciding that they needed to tell Garda what Courtney had confessed to, it was then that two of Rosaline's friends had sought out detectives Mournsell and Flynn, who they had spotted making house-to-house inquiries in the area, and leading to the chain of events that you've just heard. Later that Tuesday, Courtney took detectives along the routes that he'd taken before and after the murder, and pointed out the spot where he'd thrown the ignition keys to the Peugeot, and where he'd washed his bloodstained hands in the canal. Courtney was charged with the murder of Patricia O'Toole at 2.45pm that afternoon, though when the charge was read out, he made no reply, and when he appeared at the Bridewell the following day to appear before Judge Brian Kirby, onlookers rushed towards the Garda car, shouting obscenities, and detectives had to swiftly usher him into the building, covering his head with a heavy brown overcoat. During the 12-minute hearing, the dark-haired, slim-moustached Courtney, dressed in a grey-patterned pullover and black-cord trousers, stared anxiously at the judge's bench, hardly flinching from the one position throughout the hearing, and kept his right hand resting on his hip. He didn't speak during proceedings, but nodded briefly to Judge Kirby when told of the remand date, before then being taken to Mountjoy Prison. However, Four weeks after being charged with murder, Mr Justice Lynch granted Courtney bail on surety of £1,000 and an independent surety of £10,000 on condition that he take any advised medical treatment and the condition that he had to reside on military property. Unreal that, eh? Courtney actually gave an interview to the Sunday World newspaper whilst he was out on bail, just ahead of his trial date and where his conditions were relaxed enough that he was allowed to his parents' home, and from where telling them how friends of his had advised him to flee the country, but he had valiantly refused to, saying, They told me to leg it out of the country while I had chance, but I couldn't do that to my mother. She's been through enough already. Nobody in our house has ever been in trouble before, and I was brought up that you don't hit girls. I never once laid a hand on my girlfriend Rosaline, and in all my years of marriage, I never hit my wife. That's why I can't understand it. After various lengthy legal delays, Courtney's trial took place in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin on the 13th of January 1993, and attracted a huge public interest. Courtney, who attended each day of the trial dressed in full military uniform, as was his right as he was still at the time a serving soldier, and this was legislation then, pleaded not guilty to murder, and though he may have been remorseful, he showed no sign of it during his trial where he retained the services of one of the country's leading criminal defence barristers, Paddy McEntee SC, to attempt a defence for him of guilty but insane, which could have resulted in a relatively short period of detention for him in the Central Mental Hospital. Opening the address, Mr McEntee said, 
It is not your function or mine to raise the emotional climate in this case, but it is an emotional subject, and any excursion into the mind of someone who was killed is distressing. I am not maintaining that he should go off scot-free. Did he, when he did these acts, intend to kill or to cause serious injury? That is the core of this case. The evidence will show how a perfectly ordinary Dublin man, happily married with his little family, went to the Lebanon, had certain experiences of a pretty horrible nature, which had serious consequences. You will hear about the deterioration of a human being from perfect normality. I am setting out to prove to you that on August the 31st, his emotional makeup was so affected by his experiences of life that he was suffering from what the experts call PTSD. The then state pathologist, Dr. John Harbison, gave graphic evidence as to the injuries Patricia had suffered, injuries which he said were consistent with her being struck by the 8-inch by 4-inch brick containing traces of her blood and hair which had been found beside her body. He told the court, The cause of death was inhalation of blood as a result of bleeding from the mouth and nose when she was unconscious due to her head injuries. Had she been conscious, she could have coughed the blood up. She literally drowned in the blood going down her windpipe. Dr. Harbison said that it was a violent and prolonged attack which had continued after her death. He said there were also drag marks on her buttocks and 11 different areas of injury to her arms and hands, some of which were consistent with defensive injuries. He also told how though there was an injury to her genital area and bruising to her inner left thigh, there was no clear evidence of sexual intercourse or of any attempted forced sexual intercourse. Various witness statements from those who had been out with Patricia that Friday night and those who had seen Patricia driving around in the early hours of the Saturday that she was murdered were then read out to the court. And Courtney's girlfriend, Rosaline Holland, then gave evidence of the events before the murder when Patricia had offered her and Courtney a lift after she'd stopped to ask them for directions near Highland Shop in Inchicore. She broke down several times during giving evidence, and her testimony even had to be halted at one point when asked if she still loved Courtney, which she said she did, and then broke down in floods of tears. Then it came to Courtney himself to take the stand. Despite his attempt at staunch military bearing, dressed in his number one uniform, he cut a pathetic figure in the dock as he wept uncontrollably when given his account of what happened, an account largely the same as the statement as you've heard previously. Sobbing, he told what had happened, as I said, largely the same, and said, I just kept hitting her with the rock. I hit her several times, sometimes holding the rock with my two hands. I just went into a rage. I'm sorry. Brian O'Toole, in the courtroom throughout the eight-day trial, cut a restless figure throughout it, but had to leave the courtroom at the onset of Courtney's disturbing account. Courtney put his actions that Saturday morning down to his days serving in the army in Lebanon, giving evidence of the incident on his tour of duty in which he'd come under heavy mortar fire, and in which his friend had died in the shooting incident in a toilet cubicle, and with him discovering the body. 
He said after this experience, he had undergone psychiatric treatment at St. Bryson's Military Hospital for stress, remaining under care of doctors there for some three months. He began drinking heavily afterwards, would cry regularly and had nightmares, and his marriage had broken up. He claimed after his third Lebanon trip, he was like a grenade with the pin off, waiting to explode. He said, I wanted to be on my own all the time, but I never realised I needed help. Reference the murder of Patricia O'Toole, he added, I just didn't know who to tell. It's not an easy thing to tell anyone. I couldn't eat. At work, everyone was talking about it. I was afraid to tell my ma, and in the end, the only person I could tell was Rosaline. I feel very sorry for the girl's family. Anyone who does something I did deserves to be punished. Mr. McEntee said that what Courtney had encountered on that Lebanon tour was beyond all human experience, and that Courtney was, for all practical purposes, insane at the time he had killed Patricia. His counsel said that Courtney, because of his PTSD, had interpreted what he had alleged she said as a threat and that he was indeed guilty of killing Patricia O'Toole, there was no question of that, but was insane at the time. But this was a view contradicted by psychiatrists who had examined Courtney, and were of the opinion that he was not insane, but his judgement was impaired, and that the PTSD, combined with alcohol, had affected his conduct at the time of the killing. At 7.20pm on the evening of 21st of January 1993, the jury of seven men and five women retired for deliberation, and at 1.15am, they returned to court number two of the Central Criminal Court's four courts to deliver a 10-2 majority verdict of guilty against Sean Courtney for the murder of Patricia O'Toole. Such was the jubilation from the public gallery that greeted the verdict, which saw relatives and friends of Patricia and Bryant's to jubilate wildly and that Mr Justice Kevin Lynch had to call for order, and even expel a number of people from the courtroom for, and which rejected Courtney's claim to have been suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, and so was insane when he battered Patricia O'Toole to death. Courtney's family gripped each other in disbelief following the verdict, whilst Paddy Madden and Anne Scanlon, the victim's father and sister, both sobbed, but remained in court for the immediate sentencing of Courtney. Courtney sat, white-faced and rigid, dressed in his military uniform, staring at his folded-up black beret as he had for much of the eight-day trial as the verdict was delivered, but showed no emotion and said nothing as he was then sentenced to the mandatory life imprisonment, merely nodding to the judge. However, his mask arguably slipped, as at the moment the judge left court, and as he was being led from the dock, in front of Patricia's family and friends, he shouted, She was only a fucking tramp. I'll mention this in context a bit later on. Anne Scanlon, in an emotive scene outside the courtroom following the verdict, declared, I am delighted with a verdict of murder. He will only serve about ten years, whereas I would love to have the satisfaction of watching the Irish army taking him out and shooting him, because that is what he deserves. In a newspaper interview the following day, Patricia's father Paddy Madden reflected that no justice could really be done 
since his daughter did nothing and now she's dead. He stated his belief that Courtney had wanted to chat up his daughter when he'd gotten into her car to give her directions that Saturday morning, but Courtney had instead assaulted her and driven her to the Dublin mountains. Paddy said, The only way he could shut her up was to kill her, which he proceeded to do in the most dastardly manner possible, kneeling on her chest and using his two hands on a brick to smash her head in. Eighteen months after assaulting her and killing her, he further assaulted her verbally, which shows the contrition he had for his deed. None. I feel sorry for the mother and father, and also for his poor children, and his wife and girlfriend. Patricia's husband Brian was incredibly dignified in the wake of the trial, and neglected to comment, instead just took himself off for a time with just him and his golf clubs, to be joined later by some close friends. He specified that he was doing this, and you can't fault the poor bloke for doing so really, can you? The previous day, the day of his conviction, the army had begun proceedings to dishonourably discharge Courtney from service, taking him off the military payroll that very day, and he was dishonourably discharged officially from the army on the 10th of February 1993. There were periodic reports in the newspapers following his conviction that he planned to sue the army for damages relating to his PTSD, although whether this came to any fruition or was even attempted are not clear. His own mother Mary was one of these to blame the army for his actions, saying in one interview, post-conviction, I was afraid to say to him that he needed help, but his moods got so bad that I actually prayed to God to take him. It was alleged also that Courtney and his family and friends had received verbal and almost physical abuse during proceedings. He had been assaulted at least once coming from a pre-trial hearing and that his family had been spat at and called murderers. Patricia's sister did acquiesce that this had happened throughout the trial but laid no blame at the feet of their family, instead blaming so-called friends of the family for taking matters into their own hands. Courtney was to later appeal his conviction on the grounds that the jury at his trial were too fatigued to have deliberated on the case competently, them not being fed, being cold, tired and all that due to the hours that they deliberated. But when his appeal was heard on Thursday the 21st of July 1994 at the Court of Criminal Appeal, Senior Presiding Mr Justice O'Flaherty, accompanied by Mr Justice Johnson and Mr Justice Gjorgen, dismissed Courtney's claims finding universally that he had indeed committed the apparently wanton destruction of the life of a young woman. This brought more tears from Courtney, who told the reporter covering the appeal as a result of the decision, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in Arbor Hill Prison. That's what I'm going to do. It wasn't to be quite the rest of his life, however, for Sean Courtney served 15 years' imprisonment before in 2008 he began receiving temporary Christmas leave, and then regular parole from the open prison he was then in, Lowen House, in Cavan. By that time, he was in the pre-release training unit and had soon been transferred to Mountjoy Prison, having been described by a prison review committee as a model prisoner, one who throughout his incarceration had never been cited for any misconduct, 
any drug or alcohol abuse or self-harm and one who had a good relationship with all staff and fellow prisoners. In 2009, whilst on this release programme, Courtney fathered a child with a 33-year-old Limerick woman with whom he'd struck up a relationship, Louisa O'Neill, while she was visiting another prisoner in Lowen House, and when it emerged that Courtney, then aged 43, had fathered a child and was receiving regular leave from prison. Callers to RTE's Liveline show complained that he was being allowed to begin a new family life, while his victim, who'd only been married for just a year before a murder, was denied that right. However, supporters of Courtney's, who also rang into the show, argued that he was genuinely remorseful about his crime and had suffered enough punishment in prison to date. It was also said on air that he had asked the prison chaplain whilst in Arbor Hill Jail to remember Patricia in masses each year to mark the anniversary of her death. The leave periods Courtney was extended grew more frequent over his incarceration, with him being allowed to stay out with his partner and their child over weekends. And eventually, by 2012, a job was obtained for him at Dublin Garage, where he would be out of prison Monday to Friday from 7am until 8pm. On the 1st of March 2013, Sean Courtney was officially released on licence from Mountjoy Prison, where he'd been since 2010 and immediately headed to Eski in County Sligo, where he was reunited with his then fiance Louisa O'Neill, and their then three-year-old son, part of his licensing conditions being that he was to drink no alcohol whatsoever, and not to frequent any bars or nightclubs. There's no reported reaction from the family of Patricia O'Toole about Courtney's release, but his ex-wife Amanda was reported as condemning it in an interview and saying to the Sunday World newspaper, You should stay there until you die. I know that probably sounds heartless, but if someone had done that to my sister, I'd want them in there for life. I'm disgusted that he's been released. Shortly after his release, Courtney, his partner Louisa, and their child had reportedly moved back to the Dublin area. His whereabouts today are unknown. Garden never believed Courtney's claim that he was insane at the time or that he was too drunk to know what he was doing when he brutally battered Patricia O'Toole to death that August morning. They believed, and still believe to this day, that his intention that morning was to rape Patricia and to then kill her. They believed that his anger had overwhelmed him and that he'd gone too far in his violence and when he ultimately snapped out of his rage, he realised what he'd done and he fled and in a panic, had headed home. Now, I'd have to agree with this to an extent, and whilst we can reliably accept part of Sean Courtney's account, the former of it, because it's backed up by other statements, let's take the unsubstantiated account, his own words, the latter part of his statement that we have to go on, from when he left Rosaline. He starts with saying that Patricia stopped the car at a junction of about five roads. Now I for a start find this unlikely, for apart from why would she stop the car for whatever reason, why would she ostensibly stop her vehicle so close to her chosen destination just to chat to a stranger? I studied Google Maps of the area and I couldn't find anywhere near the area she was spotted several times driving around either that would fit this description as to Courtney's statement, 
nor in the location of someone directing a person to a destination not so far away. It makes no sense and has no reasoning, and yet, with only Courtney's explanation of events, what can you do? Do you accept this? There's nothing to either explain or allow the admitted sequence of events, and I refer now to the words of an investigating officer on the case, who said, Only two people ever knew what really happened, and one of them is dead. The story of Courtney planning on showing Patricia the address, then her dropping him back at his girlfriend's flat, to then herself drive back to the address once she'd been shown it, is preposterous also. By all accounts, Patricia was upset enough, or drunk enough, to an extent where she couldn't follow basic directions, as we've heard, and had asked ultimately some eight different people, so this scenario would just leave her as lost as started, surely. I find it more likely that, having been the first to offer her physical directions, and then finding himself alone in a car with a vulnerable, attractive woman, Courtney, with sex on his mind that morning, had tried it on with her, and when Patricia had refused him, he had then struck. I've also no reason to disbelieve certain parts of his statement either, like how long she was unconscious for after being assaulted, though I would have thought that over the time it would take to drive nine miles, Patricia would have come to again sooner, and been subdued once again. I believe very firmly that he'd headed for a remote, well-known lover's lane, somewhere he may have known beforehand as defying this I had no plan load of old cock. I find that very telling through this I didn't know what I was doing nonsense that when there and he had tried to rape her that he'd been unable to perhaps through drink and he took his fury about this out on her. That's a frenzied attack and would explain why her clothing was removed and the injury to her genitalia. Not him trying to make it look like the actions of a sex killer, but because it was the actions of one. There's no valid reason for Courtney trying to make the scene look like that of a sex attack. Why would anyone even do this? How would it possibly throw investigators off anyone's scent? I'm sure he was in a panic, yes, and he wasn't thinking too well after his crime, leaving bloodstained palm prints on the steering wheel suggests so. And perhaps his PTSD did play somewhat of a part in it, somewhat. But I do firmly believe this was an opportunistic sex crime, and the bollocks about trying to make it look like the work of an attempted rapist was Courtney simply trying to cover his own tracks for what he'd done, knowing what he'd done, and knowing how reviled he would be in prison as a sex killer, where he may otherwise still today have been serving a life sentence for. For all that he said about having no plan, I'm sure that is true after the act, but I firmly believe he acted upon how he felt that morning, and that was to rape. As for any remorse he had, I believe it was predominantly for himself, knowing he would be caught and convicted, and not for the life he'd taken, and when he had been, and his attempt to portray himself as a soldier suffering from PTSD, by turning up in uniform to trial was to no avail, and the petulant child in him showed his true colours, and he venomously lashed out, besmirching Patricia's name even in death by saying, she was only a fucking tramp. Now I read several reports through researching, and there are conflicting things about this. One report I found claims that this comment was directed at the friends of Patricia O'Toole, 
who had, in the courtroom once the verdict was delivered, spoken quite without regard, shall we say, and this remark was aimed at one of them, a reaction and an attempt to defend his family. But I don't know. If it was him showing his true colours here, then yes, life sentence deserved there. As being ex-forces myself, I know only too well how very real a thing PTSD is. It's something that affected someone who is very close to me in a tragic way a number of years ago now. Very poignant and almost to the day I record this. And it is something I have the greatest sympathy for. And whilst I'm not doubting that Courtney did see some terrible things in a then active theatre of war, I believe with him... PTSD was more a convenient excuse that he thought he could use to cover up a sex killing that he'd committed. I mean, no doubt whatsoever, and he is a free person to this day, who knows, the episode may even filter back there, but I don't doubt this was a sex killing that he was done for, and I do hope that he is safe enough to walk the streets again, as he's deemed to be now released from his life sentence. But if this is someone who hasn't successfully been treated for whatever drove him to commit such a horrific murder during his years in prison, and he is now a free man, then there's always that possibility. Could he do it again, opportunistically, in a moment of madness? You never know, do you? What do you think? I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the tale of the horrific killing of Patricia O'Toole, who I, as ever, ask you to remember first and foremost over a killer, and which you can do so in the thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or if you want through any of the show's social media links, you know where to find me by now, I'm sure that you do. With that, I shall shut up and wrap up here, because, after all, I've got a season finale to write, and I'm getting down to that right now. I thank you all so very kindly for joining me in the peaks today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.